people used to come into the United States and say, it's a melting pot. So I'm going to get rid of my language and culture and I'm going to assimilate and I'm going to be American. That's not happening anymore. People are keeping their language. And you hear about all this illegal immigration and you think that's where people are coming in. All the statistics show otherwise that we have such a problem hiring here in the United States. So the United States is no longer a melting pot. It's now a mixed salad where you have all these different languages and cultures that mix together. And you've got, you know, the different flavors, the different textures and colors, and it's much more robust. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid, Sid Finkelstein. Years ago, I used to teach the core strategy class in my MBA classroom at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Like a lot of business school courses, we used a lot of case studies. One of the case studies I used was on the body shop, the retail chain that had various cosmetics and cool kind of products and was founded by a woman named Anita Roddick, who didn't have any real deep business experience. And through seat of the pants, cleverness and being kind of anti-establishment, she ended up building something pretty powerful, pretty impressive for a period of time. Anyway, I remember doing this case study on Anita Roddick and on the body shop. While there was so much to admire about how she was the seat of the pants entrepreneur that was doing it her way, creative way, there was also this other side where she really had little didn't have a lot of respect for anyone who was trying to make any money for real. But in fact, she ended up making a lot of money. And that's one of the nice twists in the case, which is here's someone that espouses lots of values about social responsibility, environmental sustainability, really ahead of her time, because this is from the 1980s into the 90s, especially. And when you get right down to it, following that approach ended up making the body shop lots of money. The challenge I present to students is this. Is there anything wrong with doing something good for society or for the environment and making a ton of money at the same time. And it's remarkable how that creates a conflict for more people than I ever imagined. In any event, one of my students in one of the years that I was doing this, her name is Wendy Pease. She came to see me after we did that case study and said how she was really disillusioned from it because she read the case and she loved our discussion of how great and creative Anita Roddick was. But then at the end of the day, it turns out that she was making a lot of money. This seemed to run somehow counter to her image. And maybe she wasn't as trustworthy as many others had thought. It was just really great and interesting discussion I had with this student, with Wendy, and showed her passion for entrepreneurship and her desire to make a difference. It turns out that fast forward, well, I don't know, at least a couple of decades, Wendy McKenzie Pease is my guest on this episode of the SIDCast, that same student. She is the owner, the president of Rapport International which is a translation and interpretation services company specializing in marketing, legal, and medical life science translation. She's also helped companies communicate across more than 200 languages and cultures. She's the author of the book, The Language of Global Marketing, and even has a podcast like I do. And her podcast is called The Global Marketing Show. What's interesting about Wendy, when we reconnected years later, is her background. She, as a kid, lived in Mexico, in Taiwan, and in the Philippines. And in Taiwan, she lived in a really, really small agricultural town. 
that had never seen blonde-haired kids, and she was a blonde-haired kid. No one spoke English. There was no electricity or running water. And she had all these recollections of trying to live and grow up that way. I mean, when you're growing up, this is kind of interesting, right? When you're growing up a particular way, you often don't really realize that there's any other way because that's all that you know. But she knew somehow that she was a little bit different. She wasn't far from a military base and there were all kinds of interesting things that happened to her as a child. Somehow this history stuck with her about living in a very different place, standing out as different and having these huge cultural barriers and challenges to overcome, even as a kid. And years later, after doing a bunch of different things in her own career, she ended up running this company that offers translation services and helps people think about navigating various global cultural environments. And so I thought this would be an interesting discussion to kind of relate her story, her background, her history to what she's doing in business, but also, I don't know, as a platform for us to talk about immigration. She's worked with immigrants and refugees and motivated her business about communicating when you don't speak the same language, the types of fatal mistakes you can make when you really don't understand other people. When she talks about her superpower being connecting other people, and that's what she does in her organization, her business. So it's once again another episode of the podcast where, I don't know, I find these people, some of them are former students like Wendy and Alejandro uh, Crawford was just the previous episode before that. Other times are people I never heard of or never knew. And we tell their stories. We help them tell their stories so you can hear it. You could be entertained by it. You can learn from it. And Wendy Mackenzie Pease is a great guest because she's a great storyteller, maybe unsurprisingly for someone in the communication business. So on this episode of the Sidcast, Wendy Pease, here we go. Welcome to the Sidcast. It's a pleasure to be here today with Wendy Mackenzie Pease. How are you, Wendy? I am doing very well. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. And you were a student at Tuck Business School, I think in the late 90s. And it's always fun to kind of reconnect with former students that are doing, you know, I mean, everyone is doing something interesting and you certainly qualified for that. And I thought, boy, this would be a fun topic to tell your story on the Sidcast and share with my listeners as well. And so much of what you do is so relevant in our modern world, the world we're in now with wars and conflict and immigration and all kinds of other issues. But I want to start with you and your childhood. I think you grew up in some different countries. So first of all, where were you born and where did you live as a kid? Well, I was born in State College, Pennsylvania. And if you don't know what town that is, that is where Penn State is. So I'm a diehard Nittany Lion Penn State fan. My parents moved there when my dad was in graduate school. I was born. He got his PhD and got a job offer to go down to Mexico to work at the Rockefeller Foundation, where he worked with Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. And then after doing research there, we were supposed to move to India, but the India-Pakistani war was going on. And so we ended up with no place to go, spent a few weeks in Massachusetts with my relatives. And then my dad got an offer to go short term to the Philippines. So we lived there for about six months until he got a position at a new agriculture center in Shenhua, Taiwan, which is a small, small, small farming village with no electricity, no running water, except for the uh, location where we were living. Go back one second. You just said it. Your dad worked with someone who won a Nobel Prize. We got to hear more about that. What was going on there? What was he doing and what was the prize for? It was Norman Borlaug, who won the Peace Prize, and he was researching how to breed wheat so that it was, as we'd say at this day, more sustainable and more 
effective mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. So disease-resistant wheat that could be grown. However, it was before all the biotech mixing with it. So it was actually breeding. The GMO. That's right. I mean, it's a side note to our conversation, but here in northern New England, especially in Vermont, anything is GMO is verboten. It's a bad thing. But in fact, it's a revolution in some parts of the world in enabling much more. I'm going to get bad mail for saying such a thing in this part of the world, but it's changed the productivity of lamb and crops. And it's actually been important had a lot of positives in different parts of the world. Well, that's what's so interesting about the technology because my dad was a plant breeder and that's what he did when he worked with Norman Borlaug. And to breed a plant, you had to go through many generations of growing it and then splicing them together and then growing it and splicing them together. And GMO is just doing that faster. So it gets all this bad press, but the scientists that I know that talk about it, they're like really impressed with the capabilities that it's done to, you know, we don't have to use pesticides. Anything that's genetically modified, of course, I'm nervous about. But when I listen to the science and how excited my father was, he's since passed about what the capabilities of it. It's amazing, particularly when you look at the number of people around the world that are starving because they don't have enough food. Yeah, there's another side note when we talk about genetic modification. That is really in the early days, but, you know, the CRISPR technology that Jennifer Doudna, a professor at Berkeley, won a Nobel Prize for. And Walter Isaacson wrote a great book called The Code Breaker about that entire global battle to try to learn how to basically change someone's DNA or an organism's DNA, which is if you're worried about GMO and crops, you're definitely worried about that. But the opportunity to heal and help, if you were born with a gene that could cause sickle cell anemia or some other terrible thing, we could eventually figure out how to replace that gene or modify that gene. It's an incredible advance. Mm -hmm. But anyway, these are all side notes. Well, you mentioned really got me thinking about that. Your earliest memories, where was that? And do you know what that was and what you were up to? Probably in state college because we moved to Mexico when I was going into first grade. Okay. So I lived in Hauserville area of State College. So I remember running around the neighborhood and playing like kids were allowed to do back in the day. (laughs) They didn't have to be supervised till they were 12. What was really interesting is my parents had grown up in Massachusetts and New Jersey, and they met at UNH. And then after they left UNH, they went to Penn State. So they had never been off the East Coast. They entered me into an international preschool. So in state college, I went to a preschool with people from all over the world. And then when my dad got his PhD, that's when we moved to Mexico. But I have some memories of running around the neighborhood in state college. And you spend most of the time in those three countries, Mexico, Taiwan and Philippines, more time in Taiwan than the other two? I spent two years in Mexico. So I had first and second grade there. I had in between for about six months in the Philippines and then third and fourth grade in Taiwan. Okay. And do you remember, like, were you studying the local language in each case, Spanish or Mandarin? In Mexico, I went to a school where I had half a day in English and half a day in Spanish. So I had each subject in both languages. And my mom says that she thinks that early education was so important for setting me up for the rest of my life because we were doing long division in first or second grade which is unheard of here in the United States. So I got an exposure and coming in with kindergarten from the U.S., I wasn't ready. So I did a full day of school in English, in Spanish, and then had tutors because I had to be caught up where the school was teaching. Right. When your family moved to Taiwan, that had to have been really, I mean, Mexico is different, but Taiwan is really different. 
Well, it was really different, but it was also really shocking because we went from living in Mexico City in a house that turned into a school after we left, right in the district, so complete city, to we end up in the Philippines. But then in Taiwan, they were building this research center. So you're talking, it's out in farmland. In the town, Shanhua, they had never seen kids with blonde hair. Me and my two younger brothers had light blonde hair. And so the culture is very different. So people would want to come over and touch our skin and touch our hair just because we look so different. So I can remember these long tables of food when the town had its festival and you'd go out and it would be all these sorts of delicacies that were really different and weird to us. I don't think we were allowed to eat it just because if you're new to a country, your stomach's not really used to it. And then they'd have the Chinese theater that would be set up and you'd have the loud kind of screechy voices and big movements and the Chinese dress. And we couldn't understand any of it. But looking at I remember seeing Chinese women that had fled China and they had the bound feet. So I can remember seeing that you could buy the little shoes at some of the markets. And I can remember seeing the women try to walk around. When you say the bound feet, could you share a little bit more about that? Not everyone's going to understand that reference. Yes. In China, before the Cultural Revolution, the people in the upper class would take their daughters when they were around 10 or 11. And they would bend their foot over and then bind them so tight so the foot wouldn't grow because big feet were ugly. And so they'd bind them over. And if they were bound right, they would make what's called a pretty lotus flower. I've never seen, I guess I've Googled it to see pictures, but I never saw in real life. And they're bound through all those teenage years when they're growing. And then when they mature, they've got these tiny little feet that the shoes are about four or five inches maybe. Mm that they'd go into. So you can imagine trying to walk. It was extremely painful, but it was a sign of high class. Amazing. Amazing. And then when the communists came in to China, they pushed that ruling class out to Taiwan and that's so people had settled there. I guess you were with your brother, so you had a little team there, but were you accepted by the other kids? Did you make friends with the other kids? What was that like? What was the cultural difference and how do you deal with that? Because sometimes kids, they don't care where you're from and what you're doing. You just play. You're just a kid. Well, since I went to talk, you know I'm an off-the-scale extrovert. <laughs> I always made friends wherever I went. And I mean, I think that's what's given me my love for what I do now. Yeah, it was very difficult. In Taiwan, we were living, it was about an hour, an hour and a half drive into the military base that was still there. And so each morning, me and my younger brother, not the youngest one because he stayed home, but the two of us would get in a car with the two kids from next store and we'd drive that hour and a half through back roads. And I can remember my parents saying, if you ever get in a car accident, you're not from this country, run away. So here I am in third or fourth grade, you know, I still have in my head, well, if you get in a car accident, run away. (laughs) So we'd go into the military school and we weren't fully included there because we weren't part of the military base. But We were kids. We played Foursquare. We played tag. We were learning the American curriculum because that's the school that I went to. One of the reasons for us leaving was that the military base was then closing down at that point and we wouldn't have had the American community in the military base to go to school. 
So we weren't fully included there. And then when we were in the town, we really didn't have local friends there because we were far enough away. We were just so different. I don't even know where they went to the local school or if they even had education or just we weren't there. So we ended up playing with a couple of kids that were in the neighborhood. And I can remember big cobras coming in and there weren't songbirds in the area because people ate them for food. So we had dirt clods. So the dirt would get very clotted. And one of the most amazing things, one of the people that was from there built a fire in the dirt clogs and cooked sweet potatoes in it. I've never had a sweet potato that has been so good. You know, when you talk about food and the way people in different countries or even regions of countries make do different things with traditional methods. It might not look like what would pass for in America as always the most sanitary thing, but it works and they do it and then the food is great. And another kind of thing that happened, I think you had some issue with a motorcycle driver. Yeah, I was with a friend and her family and we were in Tainan where the school was and crossing a street and I got hit by a motorcycle and I didn't know probably until a few years ago, my mom refreshed my memory that the parents of my friend said that the motorcycle actually sped up to hit me. There was some discrimination or some targeting or some Mm -hmm. dislike for the whites that were there. Were you hurt from that? I mean, what happened? I wasn't seriously hurt. No, No, I fell off the jungle gym at the school and I scraped my chin up and I had to get stitches. And I can remember being terrified by that because we went into this little local community hospital and I didn't speak the language. And I didn't understand what was going on, but they put a, you know, a sheet over my face with the little hole so they could stitch me up. Wow. So I remember that was the worst injury I had. Did you end up going back to Taiwan years later? I have not gone back yet. I've been to China since then, but I have looked up the research center where my dad was employed and it's now a high tech center and there's a high speed rail that goes from Taipei down into the south so you can get there. And between Shenhua and Tainan is now a short high speed train rides. So I'm sure it's very, very different. But the agriculture's thriving there. They're doing really well. They bring researchers from all over the world to look at crop production and crop research. It is amazing the pace of development in some countries. I used to go to Vietnam in the late 90s and early 2000s. What happened, in fact, was that we were helping the Vietnamese create a business school, the first business school in Vietnam, which is kind of interesting. It was called HSB as opposed to HBS, Hanoi School of Business. (laughs) What I remember is the first time that we went there, you land at the airport and then you're on this long dirt road into the city. This was into Hanoi. And you see the rice fields as you go by and you see people in the fields and wearing those famous hats. And within the space of two or three years, that became a major highway. Then in the city in Hanoi, at every light, and there weren't always lights, but every stop sign, let's say, there were tons and tons of bicycles and some motorbikes, occasionally a motorcycle and more rarely a car. Again, within a very short period of time, that totally shifted to kind of the reverse distribution with cars and motorcycles and then fewer bikes. And so the pace was really kind of amazing of the development just on that scale. And the other thing I remember from those days is trying to cross the street when there wasn't a light. And my goodness, because there are probably literally 20 vehicles going in one direction. Bicycles and motorbikes are not that big and the road could be, some of the bigger roads were wide. And we were told, just walk slowly and straight. Don't break stride, don't run. Everyone will see you and will avoid you and go around you. 
That's what I did, but I can't say I felt very confident doing that. Yeah, there's all sorts of tricks around the world. I remember when we were in Mexico and we would drive from Mexico City to Acapulco and you had to go through some windy mountainous mm-hmm. roads. And so the habit was, is you would just beep before you went around the corner. You'd be speeding along and the road might not be that big. Growing up, I just thought every time you go around a bend, <laughs> you beep your own fire. <laughs> yeah, I actually saw that in Dominican Republic not that many years ago. And that was a little scary. You just go right through every intersection and you just beep. But anyways, we're here talking and standing and so we managed to deal with it. This background of yours, living in different cultures and seeing how things work, I suppose we could say that somehow that became ingrained in you, imprinted almost, that eventually it came out with the work that you ended up doing. But that's looking at it retrospectively. When you were younger, what did you think you'd end up doing? Did you even think about it? Yeah, when I was younger at one point, I wanted to be president. Good. We're still waiting. Then kind of realized I'm still waiting for a woman president. And I think looking at how politics goes, you know, as I got older and being in that, being a woman in politics, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Then I thought about going to law school. No, that was a little bit later. So sometime during high school, I told my dad that I wanted to be an interpreter because I spoke some Spanish from going to school in Mexico. The advice he gave me is become bilingual but also become some sort of subject matter expertise. Mm -hmm. So when I went to college, I majored in foreign service and international politics with the intention of going to law school. But I had a minor in business just because I thought that would be helpful and I could apply credits to that. When I graduated, my plan was to go work for a couple of years and then go to law school. Well, I got a job in sales selling to lawyers and I realized that I didn't want to do what they did all day. (laughs) They dealt with problems. You know, they were always mediating problems, the ones that I was working with. So that's when I fell in love with business is when I was doing sales. I worked for a company and then I started my own company and I realized I knew how to run a small company, but I wanted to grow one. And some laws changed that affected my business. So I decided to close it up. I didn't even know you could sell a business. So <laughs> look at that. But I closed it up and that's when I went back to Tuck. And then coming out of Tuck, I've always been in business to business services. I worked at some companies, like I worked at a tele a integrated marketing company that provided multilingual marketing services. And then I worked at PEO, a professional employer organization that provided services to small businesses. I've always been in business to business services. I went into global marketing at ParExcel, which is in the life sciences industry. It's a consulting company. So that's where I got into global marketing. But after two layoffs on maternity leaves, I decided I was done with doing the corporate thing and wanted to own my own business again. So that's how I ended up buying the company that I run now. So when you were having a kid, you were laid off? Not once, but twice. Twice. And that's not against the law in America, is it? Yeah, well, it could be against the law, but you have to prove discrimination. And that is very difficult and very expensive. The contrast is amazing. As I mentioned this maybe once or twice in other episodes, I'm Canadian. I have nieces and nephews in Canada that have kids and they get a year of maternity, a year. They call it mat leave. And there's a job waiting for them, at least at that level that they were at before. What actually ends up happening is that these really talented people are not pushed out of the workforce, are not forced to kind of recreate themselves, which is what you've done multiple times. And it's not to say they couldn't have done that, but it's probably a lot tougher. And so you could imagine that you could 
have an ongoing career for as long as you want to have that career with a couple of long leaves for babies so being a primary caregiver. It's just so much more sophisticated and better for the economy. It is always stunning that in the U.S., it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I don't know if maybe in our kids' lifetimes, maybe something will happen. It's such an odd thing to me. And so you had to do a lot of recreation, didn't you? Yes, I did. I did. Well, I do have to mention that both my bosses were Harvard Business School grads. I think if they had been Tuckies, they wouldn't have done. I'm going to get more bad mail now. Thank you for that very much. I don't know if there's correlation or causation or. Let's, uh, let's move on, Wendy. <laughs> so I do have some good friends from Harvey uh, HBS, but I just had to say that. What's really unfortunate about that situation is I remember like six weeks after having a baby and I wasn't sleeping through the night and I was going to a new mother support group and I'd made friends with all these moms. And it was in September and I had to drive about a half an hour to get to where we met. I couldn't remember what shoes I had on. So I looked down, I had my ex-husband's winter slippers on. And (laughs) and I just started laughing because I was going to a safe place. But then I started bawling because I had these hormones with me. And I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be a professional woman looking for a new job because I was going to take the 12 weeks and then return. And at six weeks, I can barely function to get out of the door. So it was really, really hard. I would not do that to a woman. But you did it. You worked your way through it. You said you bought your company now? Yes. So my youngest one was six months old and I went to the venture forum up at Tuck and I met a fellow alum and I said, yeah, I'm looking for a new position. Actually, he was six months when I bought it. And so he was about three months old and I drove up for the day to attend the conference. He said, well, why don't you buy a business if you don't have an idea to start one? I kind of raised my eyebrows at him. I said, well, with what money? I'd like to work, but I needed to make money too. We went off to network with other people, but I got back and I started daydreaming online, as I like to say, and I found a bunch of places that would list companies for sale. And I found this little foreign language translation company that was available for sale about 45 minutes south of here. So I reached out to her. I majored in foreign service. I love business. I owned a company before in California that had a similar business model. I had thought about being an interpreter. I love languages, culture, and travel. And so all of that, I could be passionate about Mm -hmm. that and I could Mm -hmm. do it. At one point, it looked like the deal was going to fall through. And I had hired a broker to work with me because when I worked at the PEO, we did go public and we acquired companies. And so I wanted somebody that was going to advise me on my side. When the deal was about to fall through, he said, well, I've got this other company for sale. Imagine you're on Martha's Vineyard and you look out over the field and there are all these tables set beautifully and the white tablecloths are blowing in the wind. And he said, you know, it's a tablecloth company. They do linens for corporate events. It's highly profitable. And all I could see was laundry and trucks. (laughs) I went, I have no passion about that. Even though it's really profitable, it's not going to do. So he came up with an idea to put the payout into an escrow account that he could hold and the deal ended up going through. How many years ago was that? 17 years. Wow. That's a while now. What was the biggest surprise for you when you started running your own company that you owned at that stage of your life? 
I mean, you had that experience, almost perfect experience for that, but still it's different when you plan to what actually happens. I think the hardest thing for me was that work-life balance. When I owned my company before, I was single and young and in my 20s with tons of energy and a lot of time went into work. I mean, a lot of time went into play too. When I bought this, I bought it because I wanted to control my schedule to be able to raise my kids. Yeah, I love to work and I'm very motivated and I'm competitive enough to want to grow it that I had to figure out that how was I going to manage my time? So I got the time with my kids and didn't work all the time. But how did that balance fit? I had to come to some terms internally to say, I'm not going to grow it as fast as I could. And I'm going to put that ego part of me aside because it's more important to me to be with my kids every day when they get off the bus or if I'm going to take them to extracurricular activities or go to their school plays or activities or volunteer. So with that said, we still grow. I mean, we've had tremendous growth. So what is it that you're company does. So what we do, our mission is clear communications for a peaceful and prosperous world. So what that boils down to is that we do written translation and spoken interpretation in over 200 languages. And under written translation, it's everything from patent research to website translation, brochures, anything that would be written. And an interpretation, it's everything from telephone to video to live in person to events. And then we do some live chat too, which I say in the Venn diagram, that's the overlap. I don't know if it's translation or interpretation because it's live, but it's written. You must have a lot of people either part-time or full-time that you can call on. There's a lot of languages, so they're not all full-time to be sure. How'd you build this network of talent that could do this? Yeah, that's part of what I bought. So when I originally acquired the company, we were celebrating our 35th anniversary this year. So she had years and years of relationships of people who know the languages. And then once you're in that network of who's good in the languages, you can ask for referrals from them or use them to edit material from new translators. So all of our linguists are subcontractors because we need 200 languages, but then we also need specialties. So we have a real expertise in global marketing. It has to be done by a human and people have to understand that you're trying to do something catchy and really connect with the buyer. And so somebody may specialize in global marketing translation in Spanish. We did a proposal for the Canary Institute Island of Geophysics or something. It was something very highly technical. So the Spanish person that would do that would be very different than somebody who would do global marketing. So we've got to have numerous resources across all the languages so we can match the right professional. Right. Interesting. And so are there a lot of other companies that do things like this or is this an in-house activity for big companies? It is so scattered. Some of the very global companies will have it in-house. So yeah, if you're looking at the huge companies, they'll usually do it in-house. If you've got that next tier, you know, like the Ziplocs and the Tomy and companies that size, so it's still household names. They'll Mm -hmm. outsource to agencies like that. You still have some that will try to find individual people to do it. 
So as an agency, you're getting somebody that's going to make sure you've got somebody good, they're going to deliver, and they're going to manage across all the languages and keep archives. You know, if you do it internally, you've got to do that. Or if you hire individuals, you're going to have to have somebody that does that project management. I wonder whether in some future there's a consolidation opportunity. You know, when you see these incredibly fragmented industries where there's no doubt a bunch of mom and pops and then other companies that you know, have more traction like you do and maybe even some giants out there. You talk about work-life balance, this would completely imbalance everything. But industries that are this style, it's not unusual to see some consolidation going on by someone. Yeah, well, I bought the first acquisition. I made another one about seven years ago, six or seven years ago, and I'm in the process of acquiring another one. So it's not a huge roll-up play. <laughs> it's my own yeah. little backyard. And there has been more of a roll-up. I mean, it's been really fascinating because when I first got into the industry 17 years ago, I would go to networking events and people would say, foreign language translation, who needs that? What's it used for? Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I'd go into events And people would say, well, isn't Google Translate going to put you out of business? You know, we sat a little nervous for a while in the industry. And now I go into events and people go, ooh, translation. Well, I want the good quality kind that's appropriate for the audience. And I'm like, yeah, you want culturally adapted. That means you can't use a machine. You have to use a human that understands both cultures and fully grasps the language that they're translating into. Is it the case then that Google can't keep getting kind of creeping closer to what you do? Google, it's enlarged the market and it's segmented it out. Okay. So it used to be translation agencies were kind of, you know, you just had to find out who would deliver on time and hope the quality was good enough. Okay. Now agencies have fragmented out in that you've got some that specialize in machine translation. So if you're a lawyer and you're doing discovery and you've got terabytes of information that you need to understand what's going on there, you might run it through machine translation to get the gist to narrow down into the folder of exactly what you want translated. If you're going to take it to court, then you've got to have a human do the translation, either review it depending on how well it was written and how well the machine did, or actually translate it so it can be used in court. There's other companies that have decided they want to make a good margin. So what they'll do is machine translation and then they'll have a human editor. But it sounds stilted. You know, like if you put something into Google Translate, you know it's not written well. And so we've had clients come to us um, saying, yeah, we found out later that this agency does machine translation with editing. And so we've decided to stay in the area where it's all high quality, 100% satisfaction guarantee, Lloyd's of London insurance policy that we've never had to access. We have 100% on-time delivery rate since we started tracking 10 years ago. So you can see the gamut of how agencies fill different needs. Absolutely. So this perspective, you know, with all these languages, when we were exchanging some thoughts beforehand, you were talking about immigration or immigrants and stories of immigrants and even refugees. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yes. So first off, do you know what the official language or languages is of the United States? Well, I'll play along. English. Nope. The United States has no official language. And in the law, it's required for organizations like governments, medical, legal, schools. They could probably fall under government. But they're required to provide in-language communications to the people that they service. 
Okay. So that means if you're in the United States and you're going to school and your parents speak another language, if the school sends home a letter, that needs to be translated so you understand it. Same with governments. I mean, they're getting away with putting the Google Translate plugin in on their website. And I think it's only a matter of time before there's a big legal suit on that. Because if you go to a Chinese website and you translate it to English, you have no idea what it says. The content is so crappy. And there's already been legal cases medical cases and police cases where they use Google Translate to try to communicate with the people involved. And there was a huge liability issue. Okay. So I'm getting off a little bit on that. In the United States, we have the second largest Spanish speaking population in the world. Mexico's number one, US is number two, and then all the other ones like Peru and Spain, they come after that. And people used to come into the United States and say, it's a melting pot. So I'm going to get rid of my language and culture and I'm going to assimilate and I'm going to be American. That's not happening anymore. People are keeping their language. They're going to Russian math school. They're going to Chinese school. They want to keep their language. And you hear about all this illegal immigration and you think that's where people are coming in. It's all the statistics show otherwise that we have such a problem hiring here in the United States that if we want particularly technical math and science positions, we get those people trained in other countries or they come here for school and they want to stay and work here because of the opportunities. So the United States is no longer a melting pot. It's now a mixed salad where you have all these different languages and cultures that mix together. And you've got, you know, the different flavors, the different textures and colors, and it's much more robust. So I say, even if you have a company or an organization in the U.S. that you're trying to attract people to donate to or buy something from you, consider your target market and look at what you could translate to pull those in. Can I go on to answer another question that you didn't ask yet? <laughs> yeah, yes, you can. You're on a roll. Keep on going, Wendy. <laughs> I am so passionate about this stuff. We were talking earlier about your trip to Vietnam and how that has dramatically changed and how it went from pedestrians and bikes to now people driving cars. I wrote a book that published recently. It's called The Language of Global Marketing. And in there, I talk, I look across a bunch of different economic variables like the gross national product, PPP, disposable income, and a bunch of different ways of looking at the numbers. And for those of you who don't like the numbers, it's not really big and it tells a story, but it talks about the rising middle class around the world. And in China, the population there, their middle class is the same size as the total population in the U.S., so if you're not thinking about going global with your company now, you're going to lose out. It's going to be a huge, huge loss because the market can buy and wants to buy and they can access you through the internet. And what kills me is less than 1% of U.S. companies export. And of those, 98% are small and mid-sized companies. I don't think anyone would have against that if you put that into a multiple choice question. 1% of all U.S. companies are exporters. That was the latest research coming out of the Department of Commerce. I mean, I'm blown away by that. Yeah. You know, you could ask that question, you know, in a seminar, the numbers will go from 80%, 90%, 25%, 50%. No one's going to say 1%. I would never have anticipated that. No. And if you own a small and mid-sized business, you can go to your state. New Hampshire Office of International Commerce is fantastic. We work with them all the time. I've done trainings there. And all the states have a representative where you can go and get a grant 
that will actually pay for your website translation or pay for you to go to international trade shows. And they'll also give you free consulting and make introductions for you because our balance of trade is so far off. You also said it's mostly small companies or small and medium-sized companies that are the exporters. Maybe part of it is just a numbers game also. There's a Fortune 500 or 1,000 people talk about, but there's maybe millions of other companies. Right. And what's interesting to me, too, is the companies that tend to go international, a lot of them have somebody that's from somewhere else in the world or has lived internationally as a child or grew up in a neighborhood where it was very multilingual. So many Americans are just afraid of languages and cultures and how am I going to sell that they don't do it. So I'm finding people who have had that multicultural experience are more apt to. That's definitely counterintuitive from what most people would think about. Do you have people come to you who kind of screwed up, messed up somehow because they weren't thinking about either, not so much the opportunity that they missed, but they just didn't communicate, let's say, in a culturally appropriate way with potential clients or employees or what have you. And they come to you and they say, you got to help us fix this. Absolutely. I host the Global Marketing Show podcast. It's found on all the places that you look Mm -hmm. for podcasts or you can just search Global Marketing Show. And on there, I always ask for a crazy international cross-cultural experience. Mm -hmm. And I have heard all sorts of things. I mean, I had an old boss that said he was in Japan and this was years ago. And his interpreter told him he had to take off his shoes and kneel across the floor to greet the person that he was greeting. And he didn't believe her because they kind of had a joking relationship. But she was actually telling him something that had to be done. Talk to somebody else who said, in some countries, you've got to get drunk with the people you're talking to about doing business because otherwise they don't trust you. There's the traditional one in Asian countries where how you present your business card, you have to hand it with both hands on the card facing them because you're presenting it. And then you take it with two hands and you don't write on it. You don't stick it in your pocket. You treat it very respectfully. So there's all sorts of little cultural hints. And that's why I started the podcast so people could listen. Yeah, those are great. Makes me think about what the reverse would be, which is people from other countries coming to work or do business in America. Maybe you've got your own examples. Americans eat with their hands, which is considered gross in a lot of countries. We don't weave for, and I just did it to you there. I kind of cut you off. I'm sorry about that. We cut people off. We don't Mm -hmm. weave for them to finish. (laughs) We don't typically share tables at restaurants. Like if you go into McDonald's, you sit down at a four-person table and you're alone. Nobody would think to join you there, which is unheard of. We say, hey, how are you doing? And we don't expect an answer. Like, you know, fine. Fine is what you say. Where, and we're you know, talking to people in restaurants. I've noticed that, that in the U.S. we do that much more than in other countries where you just strike up a conversation with someone next to you. The other thing, this goes back to Vietnam days and actually in China as well. When you have a big business dinner, it's a big banquet, right? And it goes on for a while. And I'll say something about the food in a moment. But then they get up and they start singing songs. And I remember when this happened in Vietnam, this is after a you know, four hour banquet or something like this. And they stood up and they started singing some songs. Somebody was saying, yeah, that's a nationalistic song that they're singing. And this couple of people are singing about how Vietnam prevailed in the war with America. And I'm thinking, holy cow, I can't believe that. <laughs> so I'm looking at my colleague, also an American, and they want us to sing something. We don't know what to sing. Never mind, we can't sing. You know what we ended up singing? It's really embarrassing. We got up and we started singing the theme to the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now you get to sing part Let me of it. tell you about a story about a man named Jed, an old mountaineer who kept his family fed. Oh, 
I loved that show as a kid. The two of us both, it was that or the Flintstones. It was a toss-up. We couldn't quite decide. <laughs> you know what? They were happy. They were thrilled, whether they understood or not or whatever. I mean, we told them where this comes from. They were thrilled that we were getting involved with this. Oh, that's fantastic. I was just thinking we have songs, patriotic songs about the Revolutionary War. Yeah, and on top of it, I had to sing it. I mean, I'm a Canadian from birth. I don't even know what those socks are. Yeah. I could see you the theme for Hockey Night in Canada. I could do that one. But all Canadians know that one. <laughs> so you advise beyond interpretation and translation, like consulting work, right? You advise people who are going to other countries, maybe for the first time or for something really important. Like uh, the banquet in China is another big one and kind of scary because you have no idea what is being served to you. And I would tell people, yeah, I'm a vegetarian. I didn't want to have anything unusual. I just wasn't. And this is years ago. You could go, obviously, to so many amazing restaurants in China of top quality. But years ago at a banquet, not a top restaurant, you didn't know what you were getting. And I said, yeah, I'm a vegetarian. They looked at me sadly. But you could eat some rice or something like that. Yeah, we have advised people on going to other countries and what to do. We do a lot of advising on how to get ready, what information to take, how you communicate on your website, how to think about the buyer's journey, the navigation on that. So there's a lot of different ways. A lot of it I do for free just to help them figure out what they're going to do. But my biggest advice is if you're going somewhere to conduct business where English is not the native language, you can't say English is the global language. I can go on another rant on that. But my advice is to get an interpreter who fully understands the two languages and the two cultures. And then you use your interpreter as a cultural conduit because as much preparation as you're going to do here, you're going to run into things that you didn't anticipate. And how do you handle that? Now, if you don't have an interpreter and you're in one of those situations, I swear on every other episode on the Global Marketing Show, when I'm talking to people, all they say is stay curious, stay curious, because if you're curious and you're nice, you know, you're going to be able to figure out how to get along with people. And you know what? The only gesture that's recognized around the world. What is it? Take a guess. A smile. You're right. I'm right. Yay. It's the only one. You are right. Yes. <laughs> it is such a human thing, right? When in doubt, this could be the title of your next book, When in Doubt, Just Smile. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty good advice, actually. That's so interesting to think about. English is not the global language. That's not what I keep hearing. Oh, that makes Go for me it. shiver. Blow There's, the bubble. Blow the bubble blow on this Blow the one. bubble. Okay. There's so much research, but I'll tell stories. One about a company that had offices over in Japan, and they found out that the executives who were supposed to be fully bilingual over there were spending about half their time just trying to figure out what the emails say. If you look at the buyers of people who are bilingual, 90% of them want to go to a website in their own language, and over half of them will pay more money, even if they're bilingual to get content or to buy on a page that they don't want. There's another one that I heard about a podcast that started over, start China? I think it was China. And he said, I want to get more people to listen to it. So I'm going to do it in English because he spoke English well enough to do that and wasn't getting much listenership. And he changed to his local spoken dialect and his listenership skyrocketed because there wasn't content in that language and people wanted to hear it. Mm -hmm. So whenever I hear English is the global language, it's kind of the lazy way to think about it. 
I mean, isn't it more true than not for larger companies that have operations, let's say in many countries, English certainly is the dominant language for most of those companies because it gives you a commonality of at least one language everyone speaks. When you talk about smaller companies, where you're talking about having to go and create business by one of or small relationships that you start building up, I could see what you're saying. Well, for large companies, you think about it, what percentage of the employees are going to be relating back to the U.S. office? You're going to have your senior people and they're going to get into senior positions because they're bilingual. So that helps them to learn English. It helps them if they have learned English. But if you think of everybody else in the organization that's working in Germany, they're all going to be speaking German. Right. Internally, they will. That's true. Yeah. Internally, they will. And so it goes back to the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I speak a lot. We have case studies and we have clients that we work with about if you can't hire, particularly in manufacturing right now, think about hiring non-English speakers. So yeah, you can go out and hire them. But if you don't train them in their language, give them opportunities to promote and make them feel included, they're not going to stay. The same thing. It's all about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, you want to assume that English is the global language? Fine, go ahead. Then you're looking at translation interpretation as a cost. What happens if you're more inclusive? You look at the return that you get because people are safer because they understand how to be safe. They understand better and quicker what they need to do. And then they feel included, so they stay. I wonder whether international background and language is one of those topics or areas, one of those dimensions of diversity where it is acceptable to not be diverse, that pressure is not there. I don't mean that it's a good idea. I mean that it happens so often. What you're kind of arguing against, which is that people say English is, you have to learn English and English is a dominant language. But it seems to me that there's not as much focus on language background. This gets to the melting pot issue also. You got to learn English. Even what you said earlier about, you know, when you ask what's the official language of the United States and there is no official language. And so every governmental organization and others, they have to be able to communicate in the language of the people that they're serving. These are like things nobody knows, I don't think, in America. You know it. Maybe some of your clients know it. A lot of people have no clue about that. And in fact, many people, and I don't just mean people that are narrow-minded, are going to say, well, you should learn English and the onus is on you. The onus is not on us. The requirement is not on us to make you feel inclusive. You have a responsibility to learn English. We would never say that about other dimensions of diversity. Right. And there is a little bit, like I can understand that if somebody comes to the United States, yeah, learn English. But I feel the same way. If I go live down in Mexico, I should try to learn Spanish. Think about it. How good are your language skills? Do you speak any other languages? I speak a little bit of French. Okay. So you have some language skills. Not fluent, but call it working knowledge. Working knowledge. And so you've got the ability to do it. Now, have you heard of people that just can't learn languages? I suppose I have. I also think it's a type of thing that people believe is much more innate than some other things that either you could do it or you can't do it. Some people are naturals and some people are not. And I want to hear what you say about that and what the research says. But I find that type of thinking almost to be not useful because, of course, there are differences. Some people are better at learning languages than others. But some people are born more creative than others. Some people are born more natural leaders than others. Does that mean the rest of us can't be creative, can't be leaders? Of course not. I'm going to say it's probably the same thing when it comes to language. I'll give my perspective is I struggle to learn music. You know, for me to play an instrument is very, very difficult. I don't have a natural aptitude. I see people doing that. And I see it play out in the manufacturers. There's a company that we work with that they decided they do 
precision manufacturing of steel rods. So down to the hair difference and their medical implants and stuff. So they have to be very precise. Okay, so the people that they hire have to be that kind of person that want exacting and perfection. Okay, now they can hire some people. They've had tremendous luck hiring people from about, I think it's 10 different countries. And they've been fully staffed because they bring their friends and family in. And their personality types are they want the same party in the summer that they have and they want the same party in the winter. HR is always trying to plan new things to keep them engaged. And they're like, no, we always do the potluck for Christmas and we always do the barbecue in the summer. So they have a very precise way of looking at it. That is not me. I tend to have an aptitude for languages, but I'm not precise and want to be 100% on everything. So here this company is leveraged. How are we going to train? They put a lot of safety documents up on the wall that have pictures and explain why things have to be precise. You know, if you use a gum implant or a tooth implant and the rod's not exactly right, you're going to have a medical problem. And they do it everything from the attracting the training, the involving them and promoting. It's all done on skill and training level. And so people are very equal in there and they haven't had to learn the language. So if you want to be successful, you've got to consider. And all the time people are like, oh, translation, it's expensive. It costs about the same to have something written, which makes sense to me because it takes about the same amount of time. But if you look at it as your ROI for retention, safety, building your business, you can measure that and show that bringing those languages in is going to help. It's actually quite akin to this idea that I've written about called untapped talent pools. And they could be all sorts, but this is a talent pool of people that are non-English speakers or immigrants or not very strong English speakers. They could be anywhere. They don't have to be in America, especially today when you think about remote work. And just by expanding where do you think you can find talent, you have a greater probability of finding that talent. We're living still in those world of the great resignation. And I always say there's never been a better time to have talent. In my professional life, I've never seen a time where a talented person would be better off in another era because of the shortages and the needs that exist. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you had asked about refugees earlier, and there's a lot of refugees that work for us as interpreters. Their backgrounds are incredible. They were engineers and teachers and doctors and highly professional skilled people but they don't have the licenses or the ability to practice here. And we pick them up and their stories are amazing. I mean, talk about survival. And so I watch the Ukrainians that are having to leave this past year from their country. You know, they're very qualified people that are going to end up in a country where they don't know the language, but they could be very productive members of whichever society they land. So Wendy, we've been going for about an hour. The time always flies by whenever I look and say, wow, an hour already. But it brings me to my last favorite question to ask, which is about advice. The little twist is, of course, it's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back to the 21-year-old, let's say, Wendy McKenzie at that time, and you'd lean over to her and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to do, if there's one thing you don't want to do, what might that be? What would be a little bit of advice to yourself? I think it's the value of coaching, counselors, and mentors. I don't think at 21... I was as good as figuring out who they could be and going to explore some of the questions that I'd want to work out. I mean, through owning my own business, coaching counselors and mentors have been a huge, huge help. It's true. When you're young, sometimes some people are brought up to know you should be networking and it's great to have a mentor, but you have to learn how to work with a mentor. Your own return 
both in terms of your career, but just as importantly, your own personal development and the relationship, professional relationship you're building is not going to be as high if you just don't understand. And I'm saying all that because I've seen it on occasion. I mentor and advise, if you will, lots and lots of people, including kids of friends of ours or even relatives. It's great and I enjoy it. And it's great when they come back and they thank you for whatever it is you said. But not everybody does that. It's kind of amazing, actually. I was just talking about that with a cousin the other day. Something as simple as just saying thank you and then taking the minute, not even a minute sometimes to follow up and say, I really appreciate the time you spent or this thought that you had. I just wanted to let you know that this is where I'm at or this is what I'm doing. So it costs nothing. It takes so little time and it's such a huge payoff. If you define in the way I just said, it would be like, who doesn't want to know what that is? It doesn't cost you much. and It's not difficult to do, but the payoff is great. Not just for, again, your career or the person you're sharing with, but for you yourself is when you express gratitude towards others. It's actually something magical. I don't know how the brain works, but it does. It actually makes you better. Yeah, I started a gratitude practice the November before the world shut down for COVID. And I just found every morning I was laying in bed going, okay, what are the three things I want to get done today to feel very accomplished? And I'd get out of bed feeling stressed, not stressed, but wound up already. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to change that. Before I step out of bed, I'm going to think about a handful of things that I'm grateful for. And they had to be like the pretty cardinal that I saw or the words of gratitude my son gave me. You know, they had to be very specific moments. Mm -hmm. Changed me. I mean, I got through COVID fine. Mentally, I was positive. So it's just made a world of difference. So I don't know what the neuropsychology (laughs) brain effects are on there, but it works. Yeah. And that's a really good bit of advice for not just the 21-year-old, but for all of us. Wendy, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast, sharing your story your adventures and a lot of pretty practical tips about doing global business and thinking about the global diverse world we're in and how to make it better. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SITCAST is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.